0: Turn in God's Word tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, our conclusion tonight of uh, our series of messages on 2 Corinthians. Um, The Lord willing, from now uh, for the next several weeks, starting next Lord's Day, we'll be in the book of Exodus uh, both morning and evening, uh, taking us uh, through uh, our celebration of the Lord's resurrection in April. Then, uh, Lord willing, we'll go back into Exodus as well after that to uh, look at uh, the construction of the tabernacle and its implications for the type of worship that God was indeed ordering, commanding, and instructing not only for the Israelites in their day, but the principles that God is giving to us for worship today as well. But tonight it's to conclude 2 Corinthians. We begin reading then in chapter 13, verse 5. Here's Paul speaking through the Holy Spirit to them and to us. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace the god of love and peace will be with you greet one another with a holy kiss all the saints greet you the grace the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all as far the reading of god's word let's again ask god's blessing upon it in prayer father in heaven we give thanks for this portion of your word and pray that we may live our lives and live as a church, as you would have commanded us through this word. And we ask a blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this message to us, that we may be edified through it and just bless him abundantly. By your spirit, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we look at our text tonight, uh, we'll divide it into three sections. One, the call that Paul is issuing here for self-examination. Secondly, the desire that Paul expresses for restoration. And then thirdly, the parts of unity that are necessary for that restoration to actually be accomplished. So the call, the desire, and then the parts of unity. When Paul writes these words, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. The two words examine and test are written in the imperative, meaning they come as a command. This is not something they have a choice of. This is not something that Paul is saying, hey, if you feel like it, go ahead. If, if you're not really enjoying that sort of thing, that, that type of self, then you don't have to do it. Now, this comes to them as a command. This you must do. You must, Corinthians, examine yourself. You must test yourself. Now, what exactly is Paul asking for the Corinthians to do here? What does that call for self-examination look like here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13? Well, what Paul is saying to them is he's saying, I want you to examine your own faith. See, the background is where we've been over the course of the last four or five Lord's Day evenings with all of the charges that have been brought against Paul, with, with all of the, the talk of the super apostles that has come in during this time, with those who were questioning the faith of Paul, questioning whether or not Paul was truly an apostle, questioning whether or not the gospel, the message that Paul preached, was really the true gospel that needed to be preached. Paul now is turning it around and saying, Corinthians, you examine yourselves. You've been questioning and wondering about my faith. What about yours? I command you. Of course, that command comes not only then from the Apostle Paul, that command comes from the Holy Spirit as well. You, Corinthians, you there in that church of Corinth who have been raising these questions, you who have given your ear over to these super apostles who are not sowing the truth about Christ, you, examine your own heart. Examine your own faith. Is Christ living in you? Now, you'll note in the passage, Paul doesn't ask that question because he's expecting a negative answer. Paul's not raising this because he's, he's somehow challenging the faith of the Corinthians as they were challenging him. Paul, in fact, says, okay, or do you not realize this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? See, Paul believes that these people, this church of Corinth, is truly a church of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is truly living within them. They need, they need to take the time to reflect upon their own lives. To reflect upon their own faith, their own commitment, their own hearts. Is it with Christ? And Paul's expecting them to say, of course it is. Yes, yes. Christ is in me that Paul is expecting them to answer as Paul would answer for me to live as Christ and for die, to die as gain unless of course you fail the test Paul is leaving open the possibility that there may be those who do not pass the test who who cannot say equivocally that Christ is truly living within them They are to examine themselves. They are to test themselves, test their own faith. But there is a second part to this as well. It's not only in terms of their relationship to Christ. But Paul is saying, if you're really in this relationship with Christ, then there's a relationship you should be having with me as well. If you're truly alive in Christ, then this dynamic that is going on between you and I should not be happening. We we shouldn't be traveling down this road. That's why Paul says, I hope, verse 6, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul is saying even, even if I wasn't the greatest apostle amongst you, even if I I wasn't the greatest pastor, even if my letters have brought hardship, even if, if Christ is living in you, then you ought to be able to recognize Christ living in me. And we should not be at these odds. We we should not be at this point. This is not the way that those who are in Christ come at one another. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Now that's what it meant for the Corinthians. But there is also a message here for you for us as well, and in particular because this is not the first time that Paul has told and instructed the Corinthians to go about this type of examination. Paul wrote about it before in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul there, in, in his instructions there, it was in regards to the Lord's Supper. That there too is a call. There too is a is a reason for us to examine ourselves. Next Lord's Day, as I mentioned this morning, the table is there. We have the Lord's Supper. And and we issue all sorts of warnings, fencings of the table. Who can who cannot participate? But before we go there, we are called to examine ourselves. What is it that, that we're called to examine? Well, let's go back to that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's just remind ourselves of exactly what it is that, that Paul instructed there. Paul speaks, beginning in verse 17, of the problems that were going on in Corinth. When we went through 1 Corinthians, we talked about that. Then he speaks in 23 through 28 about the instructions that the Lord Jesus himself, one of those revelations that Paul received in regards to how the supper was to be conducted. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is it that we are to examine? Let a person examine themselves. Before they come to that table, before they take and eat, before they take and drink, Paul is saying we are to examine. What is it we are to examine? We are to examine our relationship with Christ. We could ask it this way. Is our reliance of our salvation on grace alone? Is our reliance for our salvation on faith alone? Is our reliance for our salvation founded upon Christ alone? Now we're to examine ourselves. We're we're to look into ourselves, into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds. Am I trusting fully Christ? Am I trusting upon God's grace? Or do I think, no, I'm pretty good. I deserve to be at that table. Do do we think of ourselves as those who in Corinthians are dealing with those super apostles who are teaching that legalism, who are going and saying, well, I did X, I did X, I did X, I did X, therefore I am worthy to come to the table. Paul says that's not the examination you are to have. The exam is grace, faith, Christ." Is that where my heart is? That I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm relied upon grace alone. I am relied upon the faith that God has given to me as a gift from His Holy Spirit. That it's not deep from within the resources of myself that I have come to know Christ. This too, this too is from God. And that the only possible way of my salvation is not through the obedience to the law, not through some cultural norms, not through my bank account, not through my status, but in Christ alone. If then, come to the table. Come. Eat. Come. Drink. Examine. See, it's really something that in the reality of looking back at 2 Corinthians 13, we could say is always to be a part of a Christian's life. It's not just when we come to the table. Perhaps then specifically we have to focus upon it in particular, but that always ought to be part of of the mindset of one who is in Christ. When Christ is living in us, there is no place for pride. There is no place for arrogance. When Christ is in us, there is only place for one thing, and that is humility before the face of God. And a realization that I am saved because of Christ alone. So during the course of this week, examine, examine yourself. Come to the table then. Even as Paul spoke to the, to the Corinthians here in, in a way that says, look, I'm not, I'm not asking you to do this because I don't think you're going to pass the test. But do it anyway. I fully expect you'll be at the table. I fully expect the trays will be empty. But before we do that, we need to examine ourselves. The second point of this section that we've read in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 is that there is a desire here that Paul is expressing to be restored to the Corinthians. He knows this relationship isn't where it ought to be. That's why he he wants them to examine themselves and, and he wants that evidence that Christ is in them to be displayed Not only amongst themselves, which was the problem of 1 Corinthians, but now also to him as Christ's servant, as we've been explaining in 2 Corinthians. For Paul, look at verse 9 as we come to this. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul does not want this to go on. Paul does not want this to continue this 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 separation that he is experiencing not the physical separation between him and the corinthians but the spiritual separation that is being experienced paul expresses his longing for his desire his praying for wanting to be restored with the corinthians the question is, as you come to verse 10, are the Corinthians willing? That's what Paul is on, doesn't know. Paul doesn't know. Are, are you I'm willing. I'm willing. Paul is in effect saying, I am willing to do anything short of compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ, short of compromising God's truth. I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order that there might be restoration. Verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul is in effect saying, I don't know what I'm going to encounter when I do come. Remember, this is all about his third visit. I come to you that third time. Am I going to have to come the power and the authority of Christ to deal with wrong? Or by the time I get there, will this restoration have already taken place in your hearts and in your minds? But it surely opens up for us the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul desires that their relationship be healed. Praying for that, He's waiting. He knows he's ready. But are they? Are they willing to be restored? Paul then, thirdly, that's a pretty short point. Thirdly, Paul then lays out What are the parts of unity? What are the parts that are going to be necessary for this restoration? What does does it look like? What what does a reconciled people of God look like? What do those who are the ransomed church of God, what does that look like? Corinth, what, what should it look like there in Corinth? What should it look like in little Farm? And that's where we come, you see, towards the, the end of this passage in these final greetings. Paul is not done. Not by any means. Oftentimes if you read Paul's letters, it, it is near, in this greeting it is near the end when Paul just begins to, as it were, unload. Not in the sense of negatives, but just in the sense of direct commands, statements, imperatives. This is what needs to be done. This is what needs to happen. This is what it looks like. Let me read those verses again. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, greet, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Five parts that Paul specifies for us that are a part of what unity is is to look like. Part 1. There is to be ongoing joy. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Again, okay, I don't, I don't mean to, to make this a big deal uh, and, and to mention this, but, but the, some of these things are important. In the Greek, the word that is written here is in the present tense, meaning it is ongoing. And it means, regardless of circumstances or situation, there is nothing that is to rob us of joy. That's something that that becomes the hallmark of the Christian. Joy. Not necessarily a happiness, not a laugh, laugh, laugh about every situation, not a chuckle about everything, but a joy. That underneath even the pain, underneath even the discouragement, underneath even the problems and difficulties, there is this deep-seated joy because we know, to use the expression from this morning, that there are indeed rivers of living water flowing in our direction. That Christ is indeed satisfying every need that we have. And so there is an ongoing joy. Can you imagine, okay, just, just use that picture again and, and think of it this in, in the context of this morning, okay? Moses goes away. The people have no, no idea where he's going. He takes those elders with him. He goes to the rock that God specifies for him. He smites the rock and the water starts flowing. My guess is that before Moses and the elders got back, Here are the people. Do you imagine the joy upon their faces? Do you imagine the happiness that must have been there? The excitement? Not only the outward, but the inward knowledge of knowing that their need had been satisfied. Rivers. Living water. Christian. Always. Paul, throughout this epistle, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, has called attention to joy. Now, now remember this letter. This is not an easy letter for Paul to be writing. These are not easy circumstances for Paul to be dealing with in his struggle with this church in Corinth. And yet, joy rings out even though there are these difficulties, Paul does not have the woe-be-me's. Paul is still in the joy of the Lord. And he's still urging them. Look, in order for there to be a restoration, there needs to be joy. You can't let every problem that comes up, be that which robs you of the joy that you have in Christ. In Christ you are filled with immeasurable joy. That's one. Second, Paul says that there should be comfort for one another. Actually, the, the perhaps the better term would be mutual encouragement of one another. There there needs to be the understanding that together we have the responsibility towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to mutually encourage one another. Paul has been seeking to do that in this letter to the Corinthians. He has been seeking to encourage them. He hasn't been seeking his goal. He's mentioned it a number of times. Look, I'm not trying to shred you into pieces. I I have a goal of, of you growing. I have a goal of your relationship to Christ deepening. If there's truly going to be a restoration, then there needs to be a mutual encouragement. Of one another. Not only within the church of Corinth, but from the church of Corinth. Towards Paul. Can you imagine what it, realistically, what it must have been like for the Apostle Paul to have heard what was going on in Corinth? This is a man, as, as he himself said, went through all those hardships, went through all those difficulties. This is a man who has given himself to the gospel ministry. This is a man who tossed away a position and treats it as garbage, as refuge, as dung that he could have had amongst the Jews. This is a man who could have been living a life of great leisure. And he is out there day after day after day preaching, living the gospel of Christ. And these people challenge whether or not he's authentic. Is that mutually encouraging? Is that building up is that strengthening? You think, you think when Apostle Paul gets wind of this, he's going, boy, I, I just can't wait to go on my next missionary journey, meet another church, establish another church, have some other lovely, wonderful Christians surrounding me. And then find out two years later that they've abandoned the gospel, gone after some super apostles, and are now throwing all sorts of criticism in my direction once again. Now, Paul never states it that way. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him state it that way. But that's, in an essence, what's going on. If there's going to be this mutual restoration, there needs to be a mutual encouragement of one another. Third, there needs to be agreement. Agree with one another. Be of one mind. Don't be divisive. United on the doctrines taught in the Word of God. Agreement does not mean uniformity. doesn't mean that everybody in Corinth had to wear the exact same church uniform, that everybody's home had to be painted the exact same color, okay? that, that uh, everybody's hair had to be cut to the exact same length. That would be uniformity. Paul is not here saying there needs to be uniformity, but there needs to be an essential agreement on that which is the truth. And that essential agreement is that which is going to bind them and unite them together. And that's what's going to restore them. Fourth, they are to live in peace with one another. Live in peace. And then the God of peace will be with you. One of the commentators took us back to, to Numbers chapter 6 where we read of that blessing of the Lord. You know, after after the Israelites had, had done worship the way that God desired them to worship, Then the instruction is given to Aaron. Okay, Aaron, now you can bless these people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Give you peace. See, the picture is of the reconciliation that is taking place in those sacrifices. And by those sacrifices, there is a reconciliation, there is a restoration of the relationship between us and the Lord, between the Israelites and the Lord. Once that restoration, reconciliation was occurring, then God could say, now my peace can rest upon you. Once again, a picture pointing us to Jesus Christ. That because of Christ, there can indeed be peace between ourselves and God. Paul writes about this over and over again in the New Testament, about the fact that that we've been reconciled through the blood of the Lamb language. We've been reconciled with God. That once we were the enemies of God, we were under the wrath of God. But now we have peace with God through the blood of the Lamb. But you see, that peace that we have with God is to be a peace that is lived out here. The vertical peace that we have as God's people with God Himself is to become a peace that we experience amongst one another. We are to see each other as a reconciled sinner. That's who we are. And if you're a reconciled sinner, if you're a reconciled sinner, if I'm a reconciled sinner, then there ought to be peace amongst us. Why? Because the God of peace has given us peace. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. See, that's what ought to be noted about how a church lives. This is what Paul is desiring with this church at Corinth. He wants them to have that amongst themselves. He desires that that be the peace that they have with Him as well. Live in peace with one another and the God of peace will be with you. Interesting statement, isn't it? When you're not at peace with an individual, a fellow Christian. Do you sense a peace between yourself and God? This relationship affects that relationship of peace as well. Just as the relationship of peace that we have with God is to affect our relationship with one another, Our relationships with one another affect our relationship with God as well. We are to be those who are striving for peace, to be living in peace. And then Paul adds this final one. And at first I thought, you know, that your first inclination is kind of to brush past it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And it's sort of like, is that important? Was that necessary for Paul to add? Why, why does the Spirit lead Paul to bring about this idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss? And why does Paul extend to these Corinthians the fact that all the saints greet them? Well, part of the reason it's important is a reason we don't understand because we're not Jewish. We say our hellos and goodbyes and it's sort of, uh, yeah, we just do it. But not a Jew. <laughs> a Jew lives out their emotions. A Jew's emotions are are lived out for everybody to see. Jews don't hide anything. Okay, Some of you probably have caught a a Jewish movie with Jewish characters in, and you, you, if you watch it for any period of time, you, you know that they, they are a, a, a race of people that, that display their emotions. See, it was true in Paul's day as it was true in the Old Testament as well. That if you came across another Jew walking on the road, And you greeted them with your typical Jewish greeting of shalom. That was a heartfelt expression. Everything is okay between you and I. If there was any sense of bitterness, any sense of anger, any sense of resentment, a Jew would never say shalom to another Jew. They'd turn. Walk by on the other side. Is there a parable coming to mind? You wouldn't speak to one another. You just wouldn't do it, much less somebody that you think may not be quite as good as you. But you see, if you express the word shalom as you greet it, as you walk towards someone, you are expressing, I am coming to you in peace. As far as I know, there is nothing between us. There is no divisiveness between us. As far as I know, we are in perfect unity with one another. Shalom. If you express shalom and the other person coming towards you the other way refuse to shake your hand, refuse to acknowledge it, look the other way, that person was saying, well, you may be in unity with me, but I'm really upset with you. I'm angry with you. You and I are not on good terms. Something is wrong here that needs to be fixed. Therefore, Jesus said, when you come to the temple and there, remember, (laughs) my neighbor has something against me. Leave your offering. Leave your offering. What did Jesus mean? He was talking about, yeah, you remember the guy you passed on the road on the way here, and you said shalom, and he didn't? Yeah, something's not right. Get it right. Get it right. Now if two come towards one another, one expresses shalom, the other person expresses shalom, it's a beautiful greeting between those who are in perfect unity with one another. There's restoration. There's peace. There's reconciliation. Every Lord's Day when you enter this place, the Lord says, as far as I'm concerned, when you come into this place as my children under the blood of Christ, you and I are okay. i got nothing against you. When you leave this place, the end of a worship service, God, it says to you, go your way. My peace. My peace. It's okay. You're leaving under the blood of the Lamb. We have peace with one another. Paul is expressing that here. He's saying, look, the essence, the essence of true Christian unity is when we're actually able to greet one another in shalom, in peace. Now notice... How Paul ends. Paul says, that's my feeling towards you. I express towards you, Corinthians, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the peace, the presence of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He has just planted a huge holy kiss upon them. That, my friends, is what the Lord does for you. When you leave, when you come and when you leave, the Lord plants a holy kiss of peace upon you. And Now he says, live in peace. That was the desire of Paul's heart. May it be the desire... Our hearts as well. Father, thank You. Thank You. That You are the God who loves us so much in Christ. That you love us so much that You greet us and You bless us with Your peace resting upon us. Thank you. May we seek to live in that kind of peace with one another. In Christ's name and for Christ's glory, God's people say, Amen.